Our fathers, we bow before you today. We bow before you as your redeemed people. We thank you and we praise you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And though you are infinitely and perfectly holy, and though we are not, you've bridged the gulf, the chasm that existed between us as your fallen creation. And you've done so through the perfect person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we cry with the seraphim on high that you are holy, holy, holy. And we thank you, Father, that you've robed us in the holy garments of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you should mark iniquities, not one of us could stand before you because we acknowledge today that we continue to come short of your glory, that in fact we sin against you in thought, word, and deed. But because of Jesus, you've removed our sins and our transgressions. You've covered us with a perfect righteousness that will stand in the courts of heaven forever and ever. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our great high priest, that you came and offered yourself willingly to save us from the curse of sin, to save us from the penalty, the presence, and the power of sin. And we thank you that you ever lived to make intercession for us, and that because you are there, we're able to come boldly to a throne of grace today. We're able to come and make our requests and our petitions known unto you. We pray, Father, that you would pour out grace upon grace upon the missions team in the Czech Republic, that you would empower Dr. Young as he holds forth the gospel there, that you would cause the gospel in both word and ministry to abound and gain much fruit to the glory of the risen Christ. Father, there are many in our church family who are struggling with physical weakness and infirmity. There are some who face incredible life circumstances and family crises, and we pray for them today knowing that your eyes are upon the righteous and your ears are always open unto our cry. May the varied circumstances in which we find ourselves today be a means of you showing your sufficiency, of you showing your power and your grace and your goodness. May the circumstances work in us an eternal weight of glory as we look unto you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Father, we're grateful today for the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives that he has quickened us and made us alive together with Christ has raised us up and seated us with Him in heavenly places. And may You, Spirit of the living God, open our understanding afresh, that we might know the hope of God's call upon our lives, that we might know the riches of God's grace to us in Christ, and that we might be empowered day after day to share the goodness of God in the context in which You've placed us to minister. Father, we recognize that You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and as we prepare now to give... We recognize that you give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, that you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. May we give joyfully today. May we give generously today. May we give as evidence of the Lordship of Christ upon all that we are and all that we have. And may you take these gifts and plant them in the soil of your kingdom and bring forth increase and harvest to the glory of Christ's great name. And in his name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the Gospel of John chapter 17. The Gospel of John chapter 17. John's stated purpose for writing this Gospel occurs at the end of the book in chapter 21. He says that he's written these things that we might know that we have eternal life. Few things are 
more important. In fact, let me say again that nothing is more important than knowing that you have the gift of eternal life. It is a gift given through the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 17, we have the longest recorded prayer of Christ. He is in open fellowship and communion with God the Father. And under the inspiration and supervision of the Holy Spirit, we have this prayer for our good, our edification, our upbuilding. Last week, we were in the opening verses of John, verses 1 through 5, in preparation for the Lord's Supper. And this morning, we'll pick up in verse 6, and I'll read through verse 19. But we're really going to focus on two specific petitions or requests that are found in this passage of Scripture. John 17, beginning in verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you've given me are from you. For I've given to them the words which you've given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you've given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. John 17, beginning in verse 1 and ending in verse 26, records the fervent, intimate intercession of Christ on the night in which he was betrayed, the night in which he was arrested, and would face a subsequent crucifixion. The prayer follows what has commonly been called the upper room discourse. It's basically chapters 14, 15, and 16. And in those chapters, which incidentally has been called the, the greatest sermon ever preached, but in those chapters, there are many specific and rich promises and predictions which Christ gives to his disciples. And those promises and predictions are then followed by what is called Christ's high priestly prayer, the intercession of a priest praying for his people. I'd indicated last Lord's Day that in a very real sense, all of these rich promises, all of these rich and specific predictions are now anchored to the throne of God in prayer as Christ pours out his heart to the Father and the eleven disciples in that context hear the content of this prayer. Christ prays audibly so that his disciples and every generation might grasp the kinds of things for which Christ intercedes. 
Christ prays audibly so that disciples and every generation might experience comfort and strength to know the nature of the intercession of Christ for his people. As we studied last week in the opening verses 1 through 5, Christ first prayed for himself and he asked a singular petition. He asked that God would glorify him, that he in turn might glorify the Father. Today, this morning, in this passage, he prays for his immediate disciples. In this context, it would be the eleven, but I believe they're also representative of all who would follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord willing, next Lord's Day, the 28th of August, will be at the end of the passage, verses 20 through 26, in which Christ prays for all who would be brought to faith through the gospel, all who would come to believe him and lean upon him, who would receive and rest upon him as the Savior of sinners. If you and I were to scan the pages of church history, many would be the people of God. Many would be the saints who have read and studied and meditated upon this great prayer, who've been comforted in various kinds of circumstances. John Knox is but one example. The leading reformer in the Scottish Reformation was drawing near to death and His wife asked, John, is there anything that I can do? And he said, yes, open my Bible to John 17 and please read to me over and over again the prayer of Jesus for his people. And as John neared the end of this life and as his wife voiced this prayer, John stepped from faith into sight and beheld the glory of the risen Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for him and whoever lives to make intercession for you and me. Such is this prayer that an uh, expositor like David Martin Lloyd-Jones took over 30 sermons to expound it, and um, for your good as well as mine, we're limited to three. Dr. Young will be back the first Sunday in September. But nevertheless, I pray that through the pleadings of Christ for his people, your heart today might be encouraged and strengthened no matter the circumstances that you find yourself in. The disciples in this context are clearly the eleven apostles, and they stand there in a representative capacity. They bear in themselves the marks of all who follow the Lord Jesus. And I would just very quickly call your attention, in, in, by way of introduction, to the marks of those who follow Christ. Those who follow Christ are marked by grace. In fact, Jesus in verse 6 says, Father, they belong to you, but you've given them to me. There's nothing intrinsic in that gift. It's not as if there was something worth giving in the heart and in the lives of these men. In fact, the gift is by grace alone. I mean, look at these guys. Uh, Peter would deny the Lord three times that evening. They all would forsake him. They were constantly grumbling and arguing about who would be the greatest when Jesus inaugurated his kingdom. And yet there is something singular about those who follow Christ. They're marked by the grace of God. Perhaps like many of you as a child being reared in church, the translation that we used was the King James Version. And I remember reading or having heard 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 in which God's people are described as being a peculiar people. And I thought, well, that means that Christians are peculiar. There's something strange about believers But the New King James and the NIV and the New American Standard Bible and other translations really define what is being said there. Peculiar means that we're God's own special people. 
Those who follow Christ have received grace upon grace, and our lives are marked by that grace. Those who follow Christ are marked by obedience. In verse 6, he says, they've kept your word. Not perfect obedience, not perfect men, far from it. But there was a fundamental commitment, there was a fundamental inclination of their lives to follow the Lord Jesus Christ wherever he went. If you can imagine this, Jesus in John 6 took five loaves and two fish and he multiplied them. He blessed them. He lifted his eyes toward heaven and he blessed them and fed over 5,000 people. And at the end of that sermon with their uh, stomach still filled with the bounty of God's goodness, Jesus preached. And at the end of that sermon, it says that the multitude left and followed him no more. Perhaps that 5,000 plus people, because they didn't like the sermon, just began to retreat across the grassy hill. And Jesus turns and he looks at the 12 and he says, will you leave me also? And they said, Master, where will we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. Every follower of Christ is marked by grace. Every follower of Christ is marked by an inclination toward obedience. We're marked by faith. In verse 8, Jesus says, I've given to them the words that you've given to me, and they've received them, and they believe that you sent me. And every follower of Christ is marked by Christ's glory. Verse 10, Jesus says of these men, and he says of those who follow him today, I am glorified in them. Christ is glorified in your salvation. He's glorified in your lifestyle, in your worship, in your witness. He is glorified in how you share him before others and how you conduct your life before a watching world. And we would discover, were we to read it in John chapter 21, that God is even glorified by the means of our death. He says that of Peter. Jesus showed him how he would die and by what means he would glorify him even in death. God and Christ are glorified in every effort toward kingdom extension. And the text says that it's for these and these alone that Jesus prays. There is a particularity to this prayer. He says it clearly, does he not? I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but I pray for them. And what is it that Jesus prays? He prays two things for those who follow him. The first request that he gives is that of preservation. He prays for the preservation of his followers in verse 11. He says, now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you've given me that they may be one as we are one. The word translated in our English text as keep means to watch over. It means to protect and to preserve, to sustain and to hold together. Jesus is asking his father, will you keep these men in your name? Will you preserve them? Will you protect them? And he's invoking the name of God over them. In essence, or in other words, Jesus is calling upon God to protect them by his might and by his power. That idea is contained in a little verse in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, that says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it, and they're safe. The idea that Jesus is bringing before the Father and therefore before us this morning is, Oh God, would you keep them faithful to you?
Would you keep them loyally and firmly and faithfully committed to you? They're wonderful images in the Old Testament in particular of God's preserving, protecting power and might. Let me just share a couple with you by way of illustration. Psalm 121, one of my favorite psalms, says that the Lord is like a divine watchman that neither sleeps nor slumbers. He's always at the post of duty so that he watches over our coming in and he watches over our going out. And he does not suffer the sun to smite us by day. That's great news in the midst of this heat wave, isn't it? He doesn't suffer the sun to smite us by day or the moon by night. But Psalm 21 says this divine watchman, always at the post of duty, is able to preserve us from all evil. Another great Old Testament image of God's preserving, protecting care of his people is that of a shepherd. Ezekiel 34 says that God is the shepherd of his people, that he's able to bind up their wounds. He's able to call back into fellowship those who stray. He's able to nurture and to minister grace to them. In fact, it was David, a shepherd, who said of his shepherd in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, and because of that I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And such is the preserving, protecting power of God, our shepherd, that, oh, brethren, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. For the shepherd is there, his rod and his staff, they comfort us. God is described in the Old Testament as one who keeps a vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5 and in Isaiah chapter 27. That is, he tends the grapes in the vineyard. He builds a protective hedge around his people. He holds us firmly and securely. And Jesus is saying, I'm leaving them, but they're going to remain in the world. And, oh, God, keep them, preserve them, strengthen them, and sustain them. And I believe our God's able to do that. I believe he's able to do far beyond what we could think, envision, or pray. Apart from God's preserving and keeping of us, we would not be kept. That's just the plain truth. We don't have it within us to hold ourselves firm and faithful to the end. We're not able in and of ourselves to remain in vital fellowship with the Father. But what we're not able to do, God is able to do and will do because of the intercession of the Lord Jesus. I could give you a very leading example in the very context of Christ's prayer in the upper room. The leading apostle, Peter, the one who's mentioned first in every list of the apostles in the New Testament, the one that always has the answer when the question is asked is a leading example of what it would be were we left to our own devices. We're not going to turn to it, but in Luke 22, a parallel context, Jesus says of the eleven, Judas has already left, he says of the eleven that this very night you're going to scatter and you're going to forsake me. And of course, Peter, full of presumption and pride, says, not me, I'll never leave you. In fact, I'm ready to go with you to prison. No, Lord, even better than that, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die with you right here tonight. And in Luke 22, verses 31, 32, Jesus looking at Peter says, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, 
twice. For the rooster crows twice. You will deny me not once, not two times, but you will deny me three times. And here's what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you return to me, strengthen the brethren. There would be that waffling, that waywardness in all of us that would overtake us, that would undo us if it were not for the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's pleading before the Father that God would keep them. We are utterly dependent upon God to preserve and protect us moment by moment, both spiritually and physically. And the Lord does that. The Scripture reveals that clearly, does it not? The Lord does that. He does it in several ways. He does it by His providence. He does it by circumscribing the boundaries of our lives. This is how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 10. He says that God is faithful. And He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is faithful in the providential dealings, His providential dealings with His people. And secondly, God shows His faithfulness by the work of His Spirit in our hearts and in our lives, restraining and subduing the remnants of indwelling sin, which would threaten to throw us and undo us. We are sealed, Ephesians 1 says, by the Spirit of God unto the day of redemption. God has put His Spirit within us, and He is working in us, and will work in us until the coming day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God keeps us by His providence. He keeps us by His Spirit. And some of the great benedictions that are invoked from this pulpit on any given Lord's Day promises God's preserving, protecting power. Last week at the end of both services, I quoted from the latter part of Jude, a great benediction. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling, who is able to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy, to God our Savior be glory and honor, dominion and power. God is able to preserve and protect us now and eternally. When Paul writes the comes to the end in the conclusion of his first letter to the believers at Thessalonica, he ends with a benediction that says, God is able to preserve you blameless, your whole spirit, soul, and body, under the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's faithful to do it. A few Sundays back, Dr. Young lifted his hands at the end of a service, and he pronounced a great Old Testament blessing upon us. He said, the Lord bless you, and the Lord keep you. And the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. All of those benedictions promise what Christ is praying for here, that you and I would be kept by the almighty power of the invincible and faithful God. And we need to be kept, because in this text there are real and current dangers that we all face. The life of a believer, this side of heaven, is fraught with conflict And there are two opponents that Christ alludes to in this passage. He alludes in verse 11 to the world. To the world. What is the world? If you've been reared in church, you've heard about the world all of your life. What is that exactly? Well, it's a very present source of conflict to every follower of Christ. 
we're saved out of the world, Jesus says, but we're not taken out of the world. We're still very much in it. In fact, eight times from verses 11 to 16, Jesus refers to the world. It is the order and arrangement of life that is in active rebellion against God. It is the order and arrangement of life that is in active rebellion against God. It's the floating mass of thoughts, opinions, ideas, speculations, maxims, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations that are current at any given time. It's difficult to define fully and to really get a grasp on it. But it's a source of near constant conflict. Perhaps more than we realize, we inhale and exhale this environment that's actively opposed to the purpose and plan of God daily. It represents everything in life that refuses to submit to God as God. The world is defining life from a fallen perspective, and we battle that constantly. We face conflict because we're followers of Christ. We face conflict because we embrace and obey His Word and desire to glorify Him. And Jesus says to His followers in John fifteen twenty, He says that no servant is above the Master, His Master, if they have opposed Me, if they have hated Me without a cause. They also will oppose you and hate you without a cause. In fact, that's the same word that Jesus uses in His prayer here. In verse 14, He uses the word hate. The truth we embrace as followers of Christ exposes evil and condemns unbelief. The truth we embrace enthrones God as creator, sustainer, and redeemer. The truth that we embrace is that which Christ says in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. In today's cultural climate, they, that may sound archaic, and Neanderthal. And it may invite everything from active opposition to personal ridicule and indignities. But it's the truth of God. It's the truth of God that there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to believe that and embrace that and share that, rejoice in that, and proclaim that is to invite the world's opposition, or as Jesus says in verse 14, to be subject to the world's hate. And that opposition comes in a variety of ways, doesn't it? Some are subtle and some are not so subtle. In some countries, to be a follower of Christ is to incur a death sentence. In some countries, to be a follower of Christ is to be ostracized from your family and friends, to become a social outcast a pariah in your community. To follow Christ may result in demotion or being passed over. It may result in ridicule in a science classroom or some other intellectual setting. It may result in something as subtle as a wry smile or a social indignity. It may result in loss of friends or social isolation. Jesus even said in Matthew 10 that it may result in tension within one's own family and household when we follow Christ. But I fear as 21st century Americans, the more subtle and lethal form of opposition we face is not open ridicule. It's pampering us and lulling us into compromise and into something less than cultural engagement. But 
Christ, our intercessor, our mediator, praise, Father, keep them from the world. And all of redeemed history to this point in time verifies that Christ is praying and God is honoring that prayer. When the Iron Curtain fell in Russia, it was commonly believed to be the end of the church there. And as the curtain began to open back up, what was discovered is that the gospel was alive and believers were being multiplied. Revival was taking place. When the bamboo curtain fell, missiologists estimated there were 750,000 believers in China. And it was believed that under the tyranny of communism and the purge that was taking place there, the witness of Christ would all but be silenced and snuffed out. But as cracks appeared in the bamboo curtain... And people were able to go in and get some measure of how the church of the Lord Jesus Christ was doing there. There was an estimated 35 million believers. Christ had kept his people. And Christ had caused the gospel to run wildly and to bear fruit and to increase. Christ prays for us that we would be preserved from the world. But then he also prays that you and I would be preserved as well from an incorrigible, malevolent foe whom he identifies in verse 15 as the evil one. John's gospel identifies Satan here, or the evil one, as the devil in chapter 13, as the ruler of this world in chapter 14. And though the death and exaltation of Christ has ultimately defeated this fallen angel, you and I nevertheless are still involved in some level of skirmish and conflict. A number of years ago, working in the yard in Florida, I encountered a reptile, a snake. Uh, It probably wasn't this long, but believe me, when I encountered it, it looked like one of those giant anacondas you'd find in a rice paddy in Venezuela. It looked like a lethal monster. And uh, me being the bold, macho man that I am, I took my shovel and whacked it right on top of the head. All eight or ten inches of it. And I continued to work. Several hours later, to my surprise, that snake was still wiggling. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, he has crushed the serpent's head. And for the last 2,000 years, Satan has been in a death wiggle. But what a wiggle it is. Because the Apostle Paul no less said in 1 Thessalonians 3 that he would come to the Thessalonians again and again, but Satan had hindered him. Paul faced a messenger of Satan that buffeted him repeatedly in 2 Corinthians 12. And he reminds us in Ephesians 6 that you and I are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. It's a real conflict, folks. And you feel it. You feel it more keenly, perhaps, than you know. That evening in which Christ prayed... Peter faced Satan's opposition. And as I'd indicated earlier, Satan desired to sift him like wheat. Later, Peter would write, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We face discouragement, doubt, temptation, error, pride, and self-elation, impatience. Rushing ahead of God with our own ideas, our own organization. We face fear. We face division. Engineered. By the prince of darkness, Grim. 
I'm reading through Pilgrim's Progress devotionally, and I recently came across Christian when he was in Interpreter's house, and Interpreter was showing him around. And one of the things that Interpreter showed Christian was a fire burning brightly against a wall, and there was a man standing in front of that fire, throwing buckets of water on the fire to quench its intensity. And he took Christian behind the wall, and on the other side of the wall was a man who was constantly feeding oil into the fire that it might burn brighter and more intensely. And Christian said, what is this? And interpreter, the Holy Spirit says, the man in front of the flame is Satan who throws buckets of doubt and discouragement to quench the fire of God burning in the heart of every believer. But oh, Christian, there's another one standing behind the wall, Christ who feeds a steady stream of grace and of His Holy Spirit, that the fire might not go out. Rightly did John say in his first epistle, Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. I love Luther's hymn, and we sing it here occasionally, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It was the anthem of the Reformation. And Luther, in his third verse, picks up on this thought. He says, Did we not in our own strength confide? Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And he's done it. And here he prays for our preservation. And just very quickly, because I have to quit. Very quickly, there's a second petition. He prays for the consecration of his followers. Verse 17, Jesus says, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Just very quickly, sanctify means to set apart. It means to consecrate and devote to the service of God. And there is two senses in which that's taken place in your life when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's taken place positionally. You're in Christ and therefore set apart to belong to the Lord. There's another sense in which that is progressive, however, in that you're growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ and you're growing in holiness and greater conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ through his word and by his spirit and ultimately for his glory. And Christ is praying that his followers be consecrated to the mission to which God has called them. I don't know the place of your employment. I don't know the sphere of your activity. But I can tell you this, that you're a missionary sent by God. And that you've been set apart to teach, to lead, to guide, to shepherd, to nurture, to build up the kingdom of God, to promote the interests of Christ in whatever arena the Lord has placed you. And the prayer of Christ is that you might be increasingly set apart for that purpose and made increasingly useful toward that end, toward kingdom expansion and for the glory of Christ. Well, there are a number of things that could be said, but notice just really quick here the means that God accomplishes this end. He does it by His truth. Brethren, there is no substitute for God's truth. There just isn't. There are many counterfeits. There are many claimants, but there are no substitutes for the truth of God. Paul is writing his last letter to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Paul is being martyred for his faith. He said, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And he warns Timothy of perilous times, stressful times, of false brethren in the church and increased persecution and stress outside the church. 
And do you know the one thing that Paul commits to Timothy's care and safekeeping? The Word of God. Timothy, all scriptures given of inspiration of God. It's sufficient to rebuke, correct, exhort, and reprove. That the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Preach it, Timothy. Preach it. Because the Word of God, proclaimed in the power of God's Spirit and applied by the power of God's Spirit, is the means that God makes us more and more useful for His service. What are some things you can take away from this text of immediate application and benefit for your life? Well, let me suggest several and we'll close and pray. The first thing that you could take away from this text is this could be a pattern for prayer. This is the way our Lord prayed. He prayed, first of all, in the very beginning for the glory of God. You could do that as well. No matter the context of your life today, you could pray like Jesus. Father, may you gain glory for yourself. May you show your grace and power and sufficiency in the context, the arena of my life. You could follow this as a pattern to pray for those whom you love. You could pray for your sons and daughters, husbands for wives and wives for husbands, and grandparents for your grandchildren. Oh, Father, protect and preserve them from the world. Protect and preserve them from the evil one. Build a hedge around them and keep them safe now and throughout eternity. That would be a good thing to pray, would it not? There's another thing you can take away from this, and I hope it's a means of immeasurable comfort. Three times in this prayer, God addresses Jesus as Father. You read through the Old Testament, you'll never find an individual address God as Father, but Jesus does. And when he taught us to pray, he said, pray this way, our Father. What does that mean to you and me? It means that because of Jesus Christ, you and I have been adopted into the Father's family. That means that God is assuming responsibility for every aspect of your life and welfare. It means that you can trust God, our Heavenly Father, to never abandon you, forsake you, or leave you. You can promise, you can believe the promises of God that He will preserve and protect you and fulfill His plan and His purpose in your life. One of the creeds that came out of the Reformation posed this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the creedal response is this, that I belong to Jesus Christ and that by his precious blood, I will be so preserved that not a hair from my head will fall to the ground apart from my father's will and that he will preserve me and bring me to life eternal and a coming day of glory. What is your only comfort? In life and death, what is it? May it be this Jesus, whoever lives to make intercession for you and for me. Our Father, as we bow before you in prayer this morning, we pray that, in fact, Jesus would be our only comfort in life and death. That we would even now feel a measure of that strength and security. And we pray that you would indeed accomplish all your good pleasure in our lives and in the lives of those whom we love and do it for his sake. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.